Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. It's the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house. Your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. First Saturday of the month here, August 6th, and we are talking farm fresh commodities with Arizona Farm Bureau spokeswoman Julie Murphy. And if you're following along in our home maintenance calendar, you know we're talking Arizona climate and agriculture. Why are climate is so great for agriculture a 23 yes. billion dollar industry here to the state of arizona and the goal with every farm fresh broadcast is to connect you with your local food and uh, meat produce supply that's grown right here in the great state of arizona so you can when you're out doing your grocery shopping for your family that week you can connect with local uh local products right off of uh, right out of our own soil Yes, and thank you, Romy. Julie Murphy with Arizona Farm Bureau here, and excited as always to hang out with the Romero family. It's an Arizona tradition, and I am privileged to be part of it. So you want me to go ahead and introduce our guest? You always have a guest, and you've got, I understand, one for the uh, Hall of Fame here. Yes, so I was inspired (laughs) because the last show, he was actually named uh, Dr. Silvertooth, your Ears might have been burning, but to introduce quickly, Jeffrey Silvertooth graduated in December 1986 with a Ph.D. in soil science from Oklahoma State University, and we in Arizona stole him away. To be exact, he is an agronomist with a specialty or expertise in soil fertility and plant nutrition, and it was important that we stole him away because for the last... Dr. Silvertooth, you can correct me on this, but at least for the last 35 years, you've been helping us in agriculture do agriculture very well. It's been a partnership between the farmers and the ranchers, U of A and Extension. And you've been really focused on Arizona agriculture. So welcome to the show. We just, I decided since he got props in the last show that we might as well have him front and center this show. So welcome aboard. And Dr. Silvertooth, I always remember, appreciate that you say yes to all my crazy requests. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today. Thank you. So because, go ahead, Rose. You have to start by explaining what agronomy is. Yeah, okay. And, and he, that degree came from Kansas State University. So yeah, he was all true. over before yes. he, he landed at U of A. So uh, Dr. Silvertooth, expra- explain to Romy what agronomy is. Very good. Pleasure to do so. Yeah, agronomy is a combination of soil and crop and soil science. So if you look at it in a real simple way, it's the business of growing plants and at a production setting, either they can be, we actually split that off. There's another field of study called horticulture. And that really is the same thing as agronomy. It's just, we kind of divide up the, someone did along the way, kind of divided up the classification of the kind of plants you're working with. If you're working with flowers and fruits and vegetables, people tend to like to call themselves a horticulturalist. And on the other side, it's uh, with more crop production systems, it's agronomy, but it's crop and soil science, literally. And the reason I have the soil science background, too, Julie, you mentioned that. When you go to graduate school in this business, you focus on either crop science, which is a broad arena in itself, or soil science. In my case, it was soil fertility, plant nutrition, which gets you into both plant physiology and the, and the soil science side. So that's a good, a good marriage of the two, in my view, for, for agronomy. hope that answers your question there. Yes. And Dr. Silvertooth, we, the Murphys have known you since you've been out here. I think you tell me the first time you met my dad, 
he landed on a dirt strip and delivered um, a human package, <laughs> the director of yeah. the Maricopa Ag Center at the time. And, and you've been up with Dad, and Dad just admires everything you do, and he really feels like you and so many other professors at the university have really helped them advance and improve their agriculture. But, you know, we always kind of pick a commodity. Well, this time we picked climate because if we didn't have our climate, our 300-plus days of sunshine, we wouldn't be growing the wonderful things we grow. So, Dr. Silvertooth, kind of give us an overview of why Arizona's climate is so awesome. And this is going to be good coming from a Midwesterner because you can make the comparison and contrast. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's quite, a, it's quite a contrast coming from the southern Great Plains out here. But one of the things that, of course, makes Arizona's climate so so special is the, is the latitude. We're 32 degrees north latitude, so we're in a southern portion of the, of the United States, southwestern portion, obviously, very extremely. And the really thing that we see in agriculture is most of our crop production systems take place in the southern part of the state, which we see as below the Mogollon Rim. Geographers, geologists classify that as their basin and range province primarily. And the climate in this part of the state, in the southern part of the state, is generally mild. It's very warm, and it it varies as a function of elevation. So if you look at our state, from the southwest corner down around Yuma, you're about 150 feet of elevation above sea level, just about 60 miles above the Sea of Cortez. And you go straight across the straight line across the state to the east, and the landscape generally rises in elevation to where you get over to Sulphur Springs Valley and southeast part of the state in Cochise County, and you're up to about 4,500 feet elevation. And so what that does, that gradient of elevation changes our climate uh, tremendously. All of it's pretty warm, but it's a, it's a relative, a relative shift. So we can, we, we can experience a really a plethora of agricultural crops. We can grow a plethora of agricultural crops across that region from east to west and, and take advantage of these various, the climate regimes that we that we work in, all of which is arid, and that also helps Arizona agriculture. And that if you have an arid climate, like we do, sunlight's not limiting. So the first limiting factor in that system then becomes water. And if if we have sufficient and good quality water, we can we, we can do an amazing job of producing crops out here. The soils are young geologically; they're fertile, and once they're reclaimed from some salinity, which is natural in the desert, they are extremely productive. And so that climate fits in with that as well. And like our winemakers like to say, we in Arizona, based on what you just said, have our micro clients because there's that range of reg- uh, gradual range of regions. So how cool is that? Right. And I've heard, and I've learned this from you since we've been talking quite a bit, I've also had Dr. Silvertooth on my regular Friday, talk to a farmer Friday on our Instagram live, but I've heard that plants actually like warmer temperatures, obviously, to a point. What makes farming challenging in Arizona is when, for example, we get too hot and, you know, we do cotton so well here in Arizona and California, but if it gets too hot, for example, like cotton, what must the farmer do? Kind of drill down on that whole temperature ranges in the summer can get pretty tough. Right. Well, you know, when we talk about plants or kind of warm-blooded critters, they're really, if we look at it from a, from a human standpoint, they're cold-blooded. They, they have to cool themselves. They're subject to the temperatures in the environment that are around them. And our plants have, we class, one of the classifications we have for, for all plants is warm-season plants or cool-season plants. And that just means that 
the cool season plants like like weather that's a little cooler, but they can't stand tolerate freezing conditions very well, and they're severely at all. And warm season plants, they just do well. They germinate at higher temperatures in the soil. They grow under warmer conditions, and they can cool themselves when it's exceedingly hot. So you go to those warm warm season crops or warm season plants, you know, like most of us are growing in our gardens or out in the fields right now this time of year. They, in Arizona, the ones that do well for us, have the capacity to, to bear this heat, cool themselves. And the way they cool themselves is they transpire water that they draw from the soil up through the root system through the plant and that moves run up through the atmosphere out of the pores on the leaf of the plant called the stomates and that that serves as an evaporative cooling process just like our evaporative coolers work for us here in our homes in southern arizona the, the plant cools itself the same way they also use that water physiologically of course but that's part of what the function is is them regulating their own temperature so under these really hot conditions that we have in the desert you know like here in Tucson, Arizona, it'll get up to about 100 degrees today easily. And that plant, if you went out into the field, if it's, if it's a good condition, and that means it also has sufficient water, it leaves it actually cool themselves to about almost 90 degrees, about 88, 88 to 90 degrees. And that's, that's how they manage. That's how they adapt to this. So any, the, any plants that we're having around our homes or in the gardens or in the fields, crop fields, and they're doing well in this environment are, are warped or adapted warm season plants and they're capable of taking managing themselves in that way. The problem we have sometimes is if we if we inappropriately plant a warm season plant in a cool season window in the across the, the the annual cycle or vice versa. But that's basically Julie how these warm season plants are adapting and manage themselves. And we capture that, take care of, take advantage of that in, in crop production systems. There are many air conditioning systems for themselves and one way that I think of it. And I, I remember growing up on the farm when you would drive from field to field, you could f- feel those temperature changes. Right. It, it was right. pretty cool. And that in the middle of the summer, it always felt cooler by a cotton field, for example, or alfalfa field. You know, we kind of referred to it earlier, 300 plus days of sunshine are Arizona's benefit. And we talk, we're talking about some of the challenges and the cool and warm climate plants and stuff like that. But what, why are those days so beneficial? And again, coming from Oklahoma, you can probably share this. Why is it so valuable that we've got these 300 plus days of sunshine in a growing season? Well, I tell you, that's a great contrast from where I come from. Where I come from, you get busy in a field one crop a year. So classic deal where we drill wheat in the fall back in Oklahoma or the southern plains in Kansas. Drill wheat in the fall and you're going to harvest in June, July, like that, and then you prepare the fields for, for another crop for the next year. Out here in Arizona, you can have several crops a year because of that 365-day growing season that we have for most of the state. And you can have different crops, like say the warm season crops, you can have cool season crops. And so this, the lands are more much more productive that way. Plus, with the irrigation we have, we're realizing these genetic potentials that these plants have that you just don't have back where I come from, I say back home, back in Oklahoma and Oklahoma, Kansas. You know, back, right, it's dry country back there this year. And wheat yields were down because they're not irrigated and they have to live with the vagaries of natural rainfall. And out here, we can maintain that irrigation if we have sufficient water and we can maintain those, those physiological capacities of the plant and see those genetic potentials. And we can have several, several crops per year. And that's more extreme, of course, as you go into the southwestern part of the state, 
where you can have a field that can carry oftentimes three crops in a given in a given annual cycle because of that exposure to the full season with wow. cool season and warm season crops can go up in it in the very same field cool and we're just getting started we've got dr silvertooth joining us from tucson arizona this saturday morning talking farm fresh And for quite a soil education with Dr. Silvertooth out of U of A Extension Office. And you had talked about plants regulating their own temperature. And it reminded me of this article that ran out of the Casa Grande Dispatch that I've kind of been sitting on for a little while to ask you about. Have you ever heard of agrivoltics? Agrivoltaics, yes, absolutely. So this is combining solar fields with agriculture. And a couple, one of the examples they gave was growing certain grasses underneath solar panels, but then raising their sheep on it so they don't ever have to get under there and mow. And they gave another example out of Longmont, uh, Colorado, where the farmer used to have wheat and hay, now is 24 acres, hosts 3,200 solar panels, which generates enough for about 300 homes. And instead of hay, he's now growing tomatoes, squash, kale and green beans that don't need the amount of sunlight that wheat and hay do. So obviously we still need to produce that wheat for other things, but it's the combination of uh, solar and agricultural together. I thought it was a very interesting thing. And the University of Arizona Biosphere has uh, experiments with it as well. And there's actually an American Solar Grazing Association promoting this now. So I was just curious if, you know, your knowledge on that. Well, I've had some exposure to it. There's, like you say, there's some people here at the U of A that are working on that. I've actually seen their, their test plots or their test site up there at the Biosphere, and I've, I've known them and heard them present on this topic uh, several times. And it's one of those good examples where and that's one of the good, a good example, the kind of thing the university should be here to do is to come up with new ideas, innovative concepts, and then begin to think about how do they apply them. Of course, I also pretty strongly believe as a member of a college of agriculture and a land-grant institution that part of our duty also is not just to come up with the ideas but also to develop them and that's what we do in our experiment stations is we test and refine evaluate these these concepts and technologies and then we work them into a level where we can begin to demonstrate them like what we have on some of our experiment stations like you're familiar right there in central arizona the maricopa agricultural center or the yuma agriculture center or safford those are the sites we would use to do that. And then go and start working with the growers. And, you know, Julie mentioned her dad and people like that who I've worked with in the past. And that's how we've worked with them is taking our technologies kind of out of our field laboratories and out into the into their fields before before we actually say they're ready to go for, for, for use. So I think this kind of technology will have a place in, in time down the road. It's interesting to see. It will be interesting to see how it fits in because there are a lot of logistics that have to be worked out to, to work into a a permanent system you build in with the solar system and then to be able to farm around it or farm under it. particularly going back to the conversation we had earlier with the diversity of crops that need to be employed out here in a in a, an environment like this in arizona with say several several cropping systems that go under a into a given field at a given season or in a course of say five years of a rotation so as as promised i think there's some things to to work out with it yet obviously there's some 
the wrinkles to work out of it. But it might be one of those things that we see in the future more extensively. You need a zero-turn combine for the cotton picker to turn around the solar panel. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, know, well, you begin to think about those things, exactly. Now, know, they might exactly. have to be a lot shorter, too. Um, you know, because we're talking about climate, it, it's and we've got such wonderful sunshine and hence one of the reasons solar farm or farms are becoming popular here but because of that we also have wonderful seed production talk about that and it has a global impact right absolutely well it all goes back to kind of this nice segue it ties into what we were speaking of earlier in this dry climate we can grow plants and irrigate them so they get their full genetic potential Full genetic potential, really what plants are doing for their own benefit is producing and reproducing. They're producing seed, and they, the seed they produce will carry on across the genetic information to the next generation. And they get a full genetic expression of that mother plant, and that seed is, is a good example of that as well. It usually carries a high-quality high quality seed with it. So you get a high-quality seed produced from crops that we were able to grow in this desert. In addition to the fact, in this dry climate, we have less disease, and you get in these more and more humid climates. Even go back in the southern Great Plains, and you go east on out to there into East Texas, Louisiana, and the south, and it's a lot more humidity, a lot more plant diseases that we have to deal with. A lot of seed diseases that get, can get on the seed and damage the quality of the seed. Not that it's like ubiquitous, but it's more common, you know. And so out here in the desert, where we have this dry climate, we have much more disease-free seed. We can do that, but we can do it better. And this high quality of seed that's produced under this irrigated dry conditions, it's very high quality and high vigor. And it's a high demand for a lot of crops. So a lot of the major crops we grow here, we actually have a seed component of, of those industries. But there are a lot of crops that are growing here just for the seed because of this environment and transported to other parts of the country. Actually, it's a global, a global connection to the seed production here in Arizona. I could tell you several good stories on that, but uh, that's... As in essence, what's happening here. Yeah, and because other countries depend on the quality of our seed, that's why we're shipping them to it. I like to highlight that our New Mexico hatch chilies that we love and we want to get from New yeah. Mexico, but all yeah. of that seed is coming from Arizona because we grow it so well. Romy, any, we're about to wrap up for and ready to go into the next <laughs> segment. I want to ask you about plant physiology next. And seed production, that's something you could really scale up without taking up a lot of land space. So it's one of those that has a huge potential of growth. Yes. You can always tell when we're starting a brand new month. We started off talking farm fresh with Arizona Farm Bureau spokeswoman Julie Murphy. She brings in a guest. She has Dr. Silvertooth in at a University of Arizona, a soil uh, scientist. To, to simplify it, I think yes. in the layman's terms, to read the degrees and the positions he's held, it's, it takes like three pages. It does. And um, he also fairly recently retired as director of for extension, but I think the last time I talked to you, Dr. Silvertooth, you said it's now somebody else's turn. I got to have pass the baton. <laughs> and so yeah. he uh, pivoted to full time professorship. 
efforts at U of A. So um, to continue on this climate story and why it's so awesome and we've just got to pray for more rain because there's nothing like agriculture in Arizona and the West in general. We can produce so much per yield on a lot less ground because of our managed water. The climate is so abundant here. But on that point, I want to talk about plant physiology. I have to be careful when I say that word because sometimes you can stumble through that one. We've developed for drought resistance. And, of course, I think of Borlaug and the Green Revolution. You know, you and I have talked about this before, Dr. Silvertooth. But what's, what's next in seed development? Because last segment, that's kind of where we left it. We are abundant in our seed production, production seed that goes globally. So what's next? Well, you know what's happening right now? It's been happening really the past 30, 40 years. There's been an explosion in, in science with our, our capacity, I say our co- you know, collective capacity in science, to understand the plant and plant genome and the, the genomic structure of all organisms. Of course, a major thrust has been in, in medicine and in human genomics. That is just understanding what are our genes and what are they uh, describing for us. So we say we have you know, two major parts to us in that respect. We have our our, our, our genotype, we have what's in our genes coded within us, and plants have the very same thing. And then we have how it's expressed. That's how we look. That's our phenotype. So we, a lot of scientists have been studying a lot. My cold career, I've been here 35 years at U of A, has been a real thrust in developing an emphasis in the scientific capacities in agriculture and plant sciences and in animal human sciences as well to better understand the genomics of our organisms, plants and animals. And then the next big step, of course, is not only is understanding what all the genes are there. It's like knowing all the keys on a piano. They need to know what what do they do and how do they interact. I like that. Keys on the piano. Nice. Yeah, so you can identify them all, but then the big part of it is is understanding what do they do. And that's called functional genomics. There's a bunch of terms for it, but that's that's a common one. And so that's really where things are happening today. And I've been having this debate with colleagues really the entire time I've been here. Some will say, Well, this new kind of genomics, this new kind of genetic technology will give us the capacity to make all the changes in plants that we really need for the future uh, without having to do what we call traditional breeding programs, which is what Norman Borlaug and really humans have been doing for the past 12,000 years. That's how we begin to develop civilization based on all available evidence is humans begin to select plants that are favorable to them to make food and would select those plants based on characteristics they liked. And as a result of that, they they modified the genes in that population of plants. And that's how we end up getting wheat and corn and you know our major crop plants that we have today was that process of selection. That's classic breeding. And so what some folks have said, well, we'll just take the genetic information we have today and we'll just bypass all of that. Well, I don't think that that hasn't that hasn't happened. I don't nor do I think it will happen. But what it can do, you see, is it can give us the capacity to better understand how these genes are working and what are the characteristics we're looking for to try to make an improvement in plants. And the same thing goes with animals as well. But how do we make intentional improvements in plants, which is what humans, again, have been doing for 12,000 years, making intentional improvements in plants. So I look at it, too, you hear this business about, well, we don't like we don't like GMO genetically modified organisms. I hate to say it, that uh, all of us, all these, all, all these organisms are genetically modified. They've been modified through the genetics through selection by human beings for literally 12,000 years. And what we're seeing differently today is if we can actually, what is happening with plant, what people call GMOs are really what we call, you know, technically they're transgenic organisms. 
And the unique thing there is you can take a gene from a totally non-related species and move that gene into another species and actually confer some type of, of, a, of a function on that, on that species from that one gene. That's, transgen- that's transgenomic, transgenomic technology, transgenic technology, excuse me. But it's going back to saying we've had these classic breeding programs and we've been breeding plants and genetically modifying them for centuries. And now we can take it a step further. But really, it's, we've seen some remarkable improvements. And the, our biggest difficulty there is, is, is public perception. Yes. And that's, right. the biggest, that's the biggest problem we have. And I think the public, or not public, but I know it took me a little while to understand the difference between GMOs and synthetic chemicals. That's not, that's you know. completely right. separate. Yeah. They, they are completely separate. Yep. Well, and right. I always tell a story because I have – I've always had a lot of friends ask me about that. And I said, well, let me tell you our farm story. We, uh, up until 1996, 97, pre-biotech cotton, dad was planting pretty traditional cotton seed. And then because of biotech cotton, uh, within that first year, he reduced his pesticide use by well over 90%. So, yeah. And then, and that's only one story. There's amazing stories. So I'm, you yeah, know? and then in that case, what would you rather? Right. A cotton that doesn't need pesticides or the old right. one that had three right. times the amount of exactly. – or, or 90% more chemical on it. So exactly. I, the listeners have to know I'm pro all agriculture. I'm pro organic. I'm pro conventional. I'm pro biotech. But t- to your point, Dr. Silvertooth, these advances that we're making just by understanding how our – Genetic code works helps us improve the technology and advance the seed technology and all that fun stuff. Absolutely. And that's really my, my point with all of that. There are a lot of things we can do with that information, but the capacity to improve and make selections for improvements in crops. And make, we try to keep all of the good genes we have in a, in a plant and add to and, and improve the, the genes that we want to confer better, better expression. You know, you go back to what Borlaug and his colleagues did. That's Norman Borlaug with uh, with Simmet, and they were working in two locations in Mexico. One just straight south of us here, about 400 miles in the southern part of the state of Sonora, and Obregón in the Yaqui Valley, and the second being up in the central highlands, up around Puebla, New Mexico. So they go back and forth with shuttle two crops a year in that process. But what they were doing was improving wheat for shorter plants, more what we call more dwarf or semi-dwarf plants, less straw, more head. And they also bred them and selected them for, for disease resistance, particularly disease against rust diseases, which really eat up a lot of wheat crops, literally, in more humid parts of the world, like where I come from, in the southern plains and, and, and places like that, but all over the world. So they were doing that through natural, not what natural, but they were doing that through, through, through intentional selection and improving those varieties where they did a remarkable job to help, to help people in other parts of the world, Mexico and in southern Asia. There will come, you know, major, major famines with regard to the capacity to produce new crops. We can still do those things today, but we can do it with a better map of the genes and understanding what they are than what the tools that Borlaug and his colleagues had. So uh, that's what I really get at with that genetic understanding. It opens some doors for us for understanding of what's happening. Same thing's happening in medicine, by the way. Right. Tremendous and gains in medicine. Right. That better map. I like that. That's another good visual for what we're trying to do just imagine if the native americans would have had that better map when they were developing the uh teosante i think is or corn yeah teosante, for the corn, yeah, teosante yeah. and 
the original to what we have today. It's just amazing. Well, yeah. c- can I can I still hold out hope that someday, out of Imperial <laughs> Valley, we could have a whole head of lettuce that tastes just like a medium rare prime rib. <laughs> there you go. Well, <laughs> as, as sophisticated as we're getting with I'm some of this, I'm raising my hand on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would. That, yeah. I, now, I'd eat a lot of lettuce yeah. if it tastes like a prime, yeah. medium rare prime rib. Well, yeah, we have high rare, expectations yeah. sometimes from our land grant universities. What do you think, Doctor Silvertooth? <laughs> well, that's a you know that's a that's a that's a tall order, but you know it's one of those things. Those are the kind of things that you need to have to as a goal, and you're no telling what we'll find in between. You know, you might find you might find a ham sandwich tasting head of lettuce in yeah. between. You know, but. <laughs> Well, and, that's, that's, that's the kind of goals we need to have. Well, Doctor Silvertooth, I just thought of something. Can you turn butter lettuce into buttermilk? Oh, big, yeah. uh, look, I got Rosie's attention. Rosie uh, yeah, loves yeah. buttermilk, and he's so surprised that our dairy industry doesn't produce it here locally, like they do, I guess, in Louisiana. But to that point, a lot of the seed development they have over the years improved varieties for taste. I could talk to any of my direct market retail farmers. I think of Frank Martin that's been on here. I, he's, yeah. you know, I he hasn't experimented to the level of seed development that you have, but he certainly has improved his seed. He lo- The first time I met him, he was flipping through a seed catalog. And he's just a gifted direct market retail farmer. And, of course, his specialty is organics, but it's that same thing. It's those seed varieties, improving the taste. We have... Favorite tam- tomatoes that we like and stuff like that. Well, um, one other quick question, see if we can get it into this segment, is talking about soils. I mean, we really haven't said that, and they all go hand in hand, good climate, good soils, and that's your specialty, soils. So tell us a little bit more about Arizona soils. Arizona soils are unique, and it, it's not surprising that you come from where I do or, or someone's from Louisiana like yourself. And uh, you come out here and you think Arizona's full of rock and sand, right? You, people <laughs> kind of give you that mystique. And it has, well, we have a lot of rock and sand, that's for sure. But the soils that we have out here in the in the Lugo Valleys, uh, where the rivers and streams flow in between the mountains in this basin range province in southern Arizona, these soils are really incredible. They're young geologically. They're extremely fertile. And if they are reclaimed from the natural salinity they, they carry as a, being in the desert and evolving there, they're extremely productive. They oftentimes have deep drainage because of these alluvial conditions. And fortunately, if they're an alluvial area, they're usually fairly close to water. We can get water to those types of those types of soils. But that's been one of the most interesting things for me working out here is just this combination of climate, the, the soils that we have. That they vary tremendously across the state. But generally speaking, that's one of the things that's a little bit of an, an anomaly or a little different than what people naturally think of with Arizona. We, but we do have these really beautiful soils and for the reasons I described. And that ties in with the climate and the, the, the water we have when we do have good water. And it just gives us this incredible production capacity out here. Yeah. Uh, I had a DM because I'm cotton aggy on Twitter. And somebody said, why in the heck are we growing cotton in the desert? And I said, well, first you need to ask our Native American family members because they've been growing it since the Hohokam. And again, right. because of this amazing climate, these wonderful soils, it's a fit. And we developed a market. We've always had a healthy market for cotton. So, if you're yeah, new to a, yeah, Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, a good example. Global market. 
and that's why it was developed out here. Cotton actually does very well in the, in the heat. You look around the world, and cotton production takes place in arid regions all over the world in a, in a very productive way in relation to how well it's managed. And, of course, there's the vagaries of the weather and everything that goes along with that. But that's what Arizona did. It captured, in the desert southwest, captured that opportunity with a crop like that with cotton. And we produced some of the highest yields, not well, not some, but really the highest yields per acre and the highest quality of cotton and a lot of crops like that anywhere else in the world because of that climate and these combinations we're talking about. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Silver, too. So I've been doing a little wordsmithing here. We've got agritainment. Agronomy. Ag- agrivoltanics. Voltanics. And Dr. Sawtooth had mentioned, you know, this Silver is like... Silvertooth. What did I say? Sawtooth? Sawtooth. We, <laughs> my parents live in the shadow of the Sawtooth Mountains, but... <laughs> Silvertooth, I apologize. He had mentioned, you know, being like a piano. What if you mix agriculture and a symphony, agrophony? Oh, agrophony. <laughs> I, can I t- trademark that name and we can use it for some of our stuff? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we've got one... With our final segment here, I want to get Dr. Silvertooth's input on uh, our situation with the water. And, you know, Arizona Farm Bureau was key in getting this uh, legislation passed here recently. And, you know, get, get, get y'all's input and feedback. H.R. 1740. Um, Rosie, thank you for crediting Arizona Farm Bureau for really helping push that. We, you know... We are so humbled that we're able to come out with a bill that put a billion dollars in the coffers for us to try to resolve some of the water issues here. And it's really from our farmers and ranchers in Arizona Farm Bureau, uh, volunteer leaders that, and I don't know how they get it all done, while they're feeding and clothing us and raising their families, uh, people like our president, Arizona Farm Bureau president, Stephanie Smallhouse, is also uh, – traipsing around the legislature and certainly our advocacy team at Arizona Farm Bureau. And it was, it was a slog. This was an intense <laughs> session. And uh, I think poor little Chelsea McGuire, our lead lobbyist, and all of our other Aggies that are out there trying to get this stuff done are going to have to like take a month off to recuperate. But it is a victory lap for us, H.R. 1740. What do you, what's your take, Dr. Silvertooth? Well, you know, it's a, it's one step. It's one huge step in the right direction, you know. But the, you know, looking at it realistically too, we are in a situation in Arizona where we're at the end of like at least twenty two years, twenty three years of a serious drought, it's been classified as a mega drought, the worst mega drought in twelve hundred years by a lot of climatologists, and we're seeing the changes, the impacts from that with our. With, a, with our environment and what's happening in these reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, specifically on Colorado River, but it's happening all across the state. So we've got a population of about, what, seven and a half, seven point seven million people in the state today growing with agricultural demands for like we've been discussing here this morning for that water. And so we're coming down with less water coming into the state and region, and there's still the demands of this. We'll get, we're, we're forced with making some big adjustments, but the, the issue that we really have too, that even though the legislation was a was a huge step forward, a huge step politically to get done in this state, but the reality is Mother Nature is bearing down on us faster than our water governance systems can hardly manage. So it's really forcing us to 
it really forces us to move fast, and we're dealing with some pretty serious situations right now. Did you notice that he gave us a very scientific, realist look at it? And I do appreciate that, Dr. Silvertooth. Um, one other thing I want to mention, and I actually know her, and I uh, respect her writing, Joanna Allhands in the Arizona Republic yesterday came out with an editorial with, on this whole issue, and I actually thought she did a fairly – you know, it's hard because agriculture is so complex – I actually right. think she did a fairly uh, uh, earnest job on trying to just discuss that. And you are right. It's not just legislation. There's so many things. And if if we can't convince Mother Nature to kind of reverse course on this right. and get more of a s- snowpack, what, in the Rockies? Uh, right. We yeah. need consecutive years of snowpack. Sometimes we have wonderful summer rains as my dad calls them he doesn't like to call them monsoons he goes a monsoon is eight to ten to twelve inches in one deluge but but since we call them monsoons it it's not just monsoons monsoons summer rains are perfect for our ranchers out on the rangelands but uh, we need a combination and we need a reversal of where our uh, climate is going in terms of what's going on so absolutely that's just our reality you know and for us to deal with our problems we have to first recognize what they are what we're dealing with and understand that the logical constraints our failure to do so will basically come at our own demise if we if we really can't face up to it. it's like anything else in our lives but that's certainly true with us in in agriculture we, we benefit from the water and the climate and the soils we have here but the key to it all is is water it's literally what we call the lifeblood of the desert and you had yeah, mentioned that 1,200-year drought, the, one of the reports I read on it, according to tree ring studies of that time period, that drought lasted 80 years, and we're only 20 years into <laughs> this one. So yeah. what if we've got 60 years ahead of us? Yeah, uh. yeah, good point. Good point. They've lasted longer than that. It's not uncommon to have them sometimes last 50 years in the geological record, you know. So that good point. Good point. So I think we have to just come to, come to terms that this is our new reality for now, for for the next night, probably the next several generations, perhaps. Dr. Silvertooth, every once in a while, especially after the latest ag census, which comes out every five years, we're about a year and a half, two years away from the final numbers of this latest census. And then after that, your, um, your organization, the U of A, the land-grant university, will do, do an economic study for us and then come out with those no numbers. I'm a little bit nervous about that $23.3 billion industry. Can we keep it up there and maybe even make it increase? Yeah, it probably has increased since it was last done. In fact, I look at it as probably, and I'm not an economist, so I'm not on thin ice there, but probably a conservative estimate. So I think it'll probably come up higher. The question is going to be, Julie, by the time that comes around, what are we dealing with in terms of water and our, our capacity to continue to produce? That'll be the single most dramatic variable that we, we have to deal with and that'll probably be the strongest impact we've had you'll be giving up you know dr silver too thank you for your time this saturday morning along with julie murphy go to azfb.org and sign up to support local agriculture